hey, welcome to episode number two of the BK Show podcast. First and foremost, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to episode number one with Kayvon. I got a lot of great feedback on that episode, so thank you so much for listening. And to those 18 people who took 30 seconds out of their day to leave a review on iTunes, thank you from the bottom of my heart. That means a ton to me. It helps me make a greater impact with this podcast, and I appreciate you beyond words. Uh, I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but it means a ton to me, and so thank you very, very much. If you haven't left a review, please go do that now. That'd be amazing. Uh, Today's episode features one of my best friends and business partner, Brian Angel. Together, we own two different e-commerce brands, and this episode will walk you through Brian's journey and how we came to acquire one of the brands we own. For context, this episode was recorded back in March, only a couple weeks into the quarantine. But enjoy this episode and make sure to share it with someone who also might find value in this podcast. So enjoy episode number two of the BK Show podcast with Brian Angel. Welcome to the show, Brian Angel. I, I, let's just jump in. How are you handling this uh, this crisis? We're about three, four weeks into the you know, stay-at-home orders uh, as we're recording this, but you know, we're talking Domino's Pizza. How, how are you handling this other than uh, having to find your own pen to sign for the pizza? Well, I'm going stir crazy, but I don't think I'm quite as bad as my wife is, who literally has to watch over a four and a six year old mm. every minute of the day. But I, I don't know about you. I, I cannot handle <clears throat> I cannot handle being stuck in a room or even in a house for that matter for twenty four hours. I'm having to like go out and go for drives, go for walks, exercise. Like this is this is definitely not meant for me. Yeah, I mean, the last year of my life, I've traveled more than I've ever traveled, right? I became a Platinum Medallion member on Delta last year, going to events and masterminds and, uh, you know, going to the the company I just exited, going to Charlotte over and over and over and over again. Um, and so I'm not used to being at home for what, a month and a half now without getting on an airplane or doing something, let alone I'm home every day with two twin five-year-olds and a, uh, my fiance. And um, yeah, I'm, I mean... Let's just be honest. I'm annoyed. I want to get the heck out of here. Uh, I'd love to, you know, go for a 13-hour drive and come say hi to you from six feet away. Yeah, that wouldn't be bad. We definitely had the weather for it. I, you know, I, the crazy thing is I mostly work from home, right? But I, I still, like, if I didn't, or I guess right now I don't, but I rely so heavily on going to Starbucks, going to Panera, going to a restaurant, just changing my environment because I just inherently, I get monkey brain all the time if I'm in one room or doing one thing. And I always find that that changing my environment has been the the best stimulus to sort of get my brain back into its full functioning mode and not having that has been really challenging. Yeah, you do that a lot. I don't I don't you know, I've tried it before. I've gone to like caribou, just you know I think the weird part is for me, I've I've got these two twenty seven inch monitors in front of me, in front of this gorgeous standing desk that I got from a wonderful company uh I know of. And my MacBook's all You'll have connected. To tell me about that. I, maybe we'll get to that in this conversation. But like the the MacBook's all connected. It's got wires everywhere. The last thing I want to do is is disconnect all of it. Go to Caribou or Starbucks or, or really that's my only options around here. Uh, and then look at a tiny little fifteen inch screen uh, and try to get some work done. How, how how do you stay focused? How do you possibly like get into a zone? Let alone there's you know constant movement, right? And our eyes, our primal eyes are, are meant to detect movement. So all these people walking by, how are you not distracted? Well, I I, I could almost say that there's sort of two edges to the same sword there. So yeah, on one hand, I, I'm I'm in the same boat. I actually don't have two big monitors. I have one. 43 inch massive screen, right? And I've got a 71 inch desk and I've got my laptop over here to the left where I can keep my, you know, basically just my Slack open. And then, you know, the main screen where I'm working, 
but inherently that sort of allows itself to be cluttered with various things. And there's something about sitting down in a coffee shop with one small screen that seems to enable me to just focus in on one task at a time in a way that I don't when I'm at home with all this great stuff here. So it's sort of a, it's a weird catch 22 here, right? Like I've got this perfect setup to where I can do anything and everything I want, but I think ultimately at times it's a distraction and you have to have certain hours of your day where you're just not in multitasking mode, where you're just focused in on one project. And that's really what I, what I tend to go to Starbucks for, or tend to go someplace for is to hone in on just that, that one thing. And I think in that moment, the small green, the small screen actually serves me rather than hurting me. Yeah, I tend to drink a lot of coffee at home. I know you do too. We're both kind of oh, yeah. a lot of, you know, I don't want to call it snobs, but we drink a lot of coffee. Uh, and I find when I go do sit there, um, I drink even more coffee. And I don't know if that's a, uh, necessarily a great thing either. Well, yeah, it, it's sort of in a weird way. Like I, I never really used to like Starbucks coffee, but now I kind of do just because it attaches me to that that moment, that environment, whether I'm in it or not. Um, but, but my saving grace is that I'm super crazy about drinking hot coffee. So as soon as the coffee that if I'm at a Starbucks, as soon as it starts to get not even cold, like as soon as it gets lukewarm, I pretty much don't want to drink it anymore. And at some point I'm going to take it back for a free refill anyway. So that's, that's like the, the deterrent from drinking too much coffee when I'm at a Starbucks. Yeah. And just to be clear, I don't know if the audience is grabbing this. Uh, I've hung out with Brian many, many times. Uh, he's not joking. He'll take two sips. We'll have a small <laughs> conversation and he will go right to the microwave to make sure it is the most piping hot coffee on the planet. I'm not even honestly sure how you drink it. it is that not normal? I mean, you saw me. I put a couple ice cubes in there. I want to cool it down a little bit so <laughs> I can drink it faster and you just want it piping hot. Yeah, I don't want to be able to drink it. If it's if it's anything beyond sippable, it's too cold. It's got to be super hot. That's bananas to me. Uh, so, hey, I wrote down a note of like something I want to tie back later on, like the whole working from home thing of how uh, your kids may or may not uh, be bothering you a little more than normal, but that how that's turned into a really cool ad strategy for us. But I want to take it way back. I want to I want to hear the story of Brian Angel. The point of this podcast is to tell entrepreneurial stories like stories, man. I want to hear where everybody came from. I want to hear what your life was like, uh, you know, growing up and how you became an entrepreneur. And then we can kind of get into what are you doing now? And, and we're partners, right? And so I kind of want to talk about our business as well. Yeah, I, I, um, it's a, there's a lot to tell. Sometimes I, I have a little bit of imposter syndrome when I think myself as an entrepreneur, because you always hear, these amazing stories about people that, that were entrepreneurs from day one, you know, the guys that were, they're, they're hustling stuff in garage sales and they're, and they're banging on doors offering to mow lawns and, or they had paper routes. And, and I've sort of almost felt, felt like, uh, I guess I've judged myself a little bit for not quite having that past, but, um, when I do think about it, I, I sort of realized that maybe it was there. It was just coming in a different form. So, um, I, where, where do I start? You, I guess you have none of that growing up as a kid. You have none. Like, so I look back and I don't have like, uh, look, I don't have a lemonade stand. Uh, I think paper out is a good one. I think that, uh, is overlooked often as that is certainly entrepreneurial. Right. And, and I was mowing lawns. Like I wanted to make another $10 to go buy a candy bar. Um, uh, but it morphed into, look, uh, you know, I was, I was selling weed, right? Like uh, I, I was doing things that were entrepreneurial that maybe weren't necessarily legal, but you didn't have any of that growing up. No, I, I think I did. I, I just think it took me a while to realize it. For me, it was it was coaching. So so when I was 15 years old, I started coaching sailing. 
and and just to to create some context for that, I, I've been racing sailboats competitively since I was about well, to be honest, I was doing it with my father when I was a baby, but I started doing it myself when I was about eight years old and and did it well into my twenties. And at one point for several years, I made my living as a professional sailing, racing sailboats around the world, um, helping wealthy people make their boats go really fast and win boat races. And, um, and at the same time, I was also coaching and running sailing programs throughout that time to sort of help pay the bills. So I began coaching sailing when I was about 15 years old. And, and one of the things I look back on is that I, I, from, from day one, I wanted to, and thought I ran the place, right? Like I was, I just was one of those guys that just always sort of took control of these things. And even when I was just starting at 15, 16 years old, I was in there rewriting curriculum and, and essentially trying to make those sailing programs that I was coaching and involved in um, my own and make them work in a way that I thought would, you know, would best suit the, you know, the, the, the kids or, or the, you know, the audience that I was serving. And so if I think about it, you know, into my late teens and into my twenties, when I went from just being a sailing coach to actually running those sailing programs in it. And at one point, even being the director of an entire nonprofit program that ran several sailing programs, it wasn't my business, but I really thought of it like it was, I really owned it like it was mine. And, um, and that's probably where my, you know, my entrepreneurial background, I guess you could say blossomed. Yeah, but I, you have one of the most unique stories of really anybody I've met. So I started this podcast because I met so many interesting entrepreneurs. Um, and you, I think you're the only one I know that grew up um, a little more well off than normal, right? Like I think you had yeah. a like most of the entrepreneurs I met. It's kind of like comedians. Like we all had a, a, an interesting checkered past um, that turned us into the weirdos that we are, really. Um, and you grew up pretty well off. Like you're sailing boats around the world. Like I don't think I've been with you where sailing didn't come up, and you're like, yeah, I've been to this random place in the world. I sailed boats here, and I'm like, what the heck, man? How did you do all of this? Uh, and then that turned into like I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm going to live the life, the way I want to live it. Uh, can, if I'm honest with you, I mean, I, I those same thoughts pop into my head. It, it, at times it makes me feel guilty and, and at times it makes me feel weak. If I, if I'm honest, I, I, I I'm self-conscious about it. I, I, maybe that's unfounded, but I do worry at times or, or sometimes I guess I tell myself that story that maybe I'm not strong enough because I haven't overcome the same obstacles um, or had the same, you know, I don't know, tough upbringing that other people have had to overcome that sort of led them to, to their success now. But um, so I, on the other hand, you know, my dad is an entrepreneur. Um, he has his own business. He's been running for, for 26, 27 years now. I actually worked in that business for several years at one point. Yeah. You mind going into that? Like, obviously you watched him growing up running his own business and, and kind of normalize that. Yeah. It, um, well, at the beginning, I just didn't see very much of him. I, I remember when he started the business, I, I was, I want to say about 12 years old, I think when he started the business, it was 92, 93, something like that. And, and at that point, I didn't see a lot of him. He was working like crazy. He was out of the house a lot. At, he was working from home, but, but barely ever there. Um, and uh, you know, from there, I, it wasn't so much, I, I can't say that I remember a whole lot about or learned a whole lot about about how he ran his business. I just know my father, um, and and like me, he's just he's kind of a uh, 
almost like, like there's no such thing as no, like, you know, no, no is just like the starting point. You know, we'll we'll find a way to make it work. So I I think maybe just, if I picked anything up from watching my dad start his business, it was probably some level of tenacity. So maybe I didn't, I didn't get my tenacity per se from having to overcome my own obstacles. Maybe it was more built into me from, from watching from watching and learning from my father um, and, and sort of the, the aggression with which he sort of went about his, his career and his business. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people uh, who are entrepreneurs have a chip on their shoulders, right? So was that part of it was watching your dad do what he did and you kind of wanted to show him you could do it too. Maybe. If I'm honest, I would, I would probably admit that there's some level of trying to prove that I can do what my father did, right? That I'm, you know, that I'm as good as him or that I can make him proud. Um, I, I wouldn't say that drives me anymore, but I know it's there. I know it's, I know it's in the back of my mind. Um, to some extent though, I, I, today what really drives me is the understanding that I'm just not very good at working for other people. I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at taking direction and it's not because I'm, I'm, I'm poor at following directions. It's because usually when somebody gives me direction, I tend to disagree with it or want to do my own thing. And I, Mm. and I'm stubborn and, and, and strong minded. And, um, and so I think my biggest drivers other than supporting my family and let's, let's, let's be real. I have a four and a six year old and a wife that depend on me now that's number one, but number two and, and, and a close second is, I don't ever want to have to go back to working set hours for another person. That's just not for me. That would be a nightmare. Yeah. I don't, I can't imagine ever doing that either. Uh, so what was it like? Like, obviously I know what your dad sells, but uh, he sells cleaning products. Is that right? Yeah. So, so my, my first real job, once I decided that sailing, sailing was done for me um, was working for my dad and he is a, he's a manufacturer's rep for cleaning supplies, commercial cleaning supplies. So basically what that means is he's the go between for the manufacturer to the the dealers or the distributors. So a lot of the manufacturers in the commercial cleaning space, we're talking Clorox and 3M and um, mop companies, vacuum companies, chemical manufacturers, uh, toilet paper companies. Um, there's, there's a variety of, of different things in that field, but a lot of those companies don't really, they don't really have their own sales force, at least not on a regional level. They might have some, some high level national sales managers and, and regional sales managers, but they oversee a, a group of manufacturers reps that are on the ground in given territories have strong existing relationships with all the dealers and distributors in that market. And they act as the sales arm for Clorox or 3M or whatever the company is in that region. So, so my father's been doing that for about 26 or 27 years. And I did that back when I was in my mid twenties and, and, and really that, that was an important time for me because it was, that was probably my best chance where I actually did get to see my father at work. And, and at that stage of my life, I think what I probably learned more than anything else was how to sell, which has been, I think, really important for the rest of my career, even though, you know, most of what we do now is is more of a, 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 what I would consider marketing than true sales, right? Where you're person to person connecting on a regular basis, but the same principles apply. And, and, and frankly, I think that's one of the weaknesses of a lot of good companies with good products is that they market like marketers without any context or background in real sales, having never really spoken 
and uh, you know face to face with somebody had and had to sell somebody in person one on one. Well, you know me, that's something I I really hone in on as far as like building that connection and building that relationship with your customer and uh I think you're right. A lot of people are out there living transactionally, right? They're all trying to get that next sale, that next sale, uh, and being very markety where I think you and I have really gravitated towards, again, you know, sales, right? Like building that relationship and really solving problems for our customers. Well, and the irony of it is, you know, which, which of these two terms is considered a four letter word to most people? Is it sales or is it marketing? Right. Most people consider sales. Like we, you know, people will say, I don't want to be sold to, right? Don't try to sell me. Well, selling is a is a perfectly natural thing, and frankly, a much more authentic thing in some cases than the way people market, um, and, you know, and sort of talk down to people or talk at people and fail to connect with with their audience. So it, it always, it, you know, it always hits me with some level of irony when people have those those stigmas towards selling when that's really what everybody is doing. But the people who have done it face to face, human to human, are the ones that are the best at it. I think. Yeah, and. We kind of deep dive into this. I don't know when these, what order these will come out in, but I interviewed my my buddy Kayvon, who's the the one call closer. Uh, he went into this too of of talking about how you're really you're doing a disservice by not selling, like you really are solving their problem. You really are helping them walk through. And we we really talked about that sleazy salesman stuff. So I'm glad to I'm glad to hear from somebody else as well. Yeah, yeah it it's definitely it, it it's 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 totally misunderstood. In fact, I think. Um, I wish I could think of the the book. Oh, I know it, it to sell is human. I, I I didn't get through the book. I read some of it and I've I've heard Daniel Pink, who's the author, speak about it a lot and speak in general. Um, and and it's all about how it, it's all about the irony of we all are selling all the time, right? If you're a parent trying to get your kid to eat green beans, you're selling to them, right? Really selling is just, it's just the act of persuasion. It's a very normal human thing. It's not, it doesn't have to just be associated with business and it doesn't have to be associated with, you know, some used car salesman on a, on a dirty lot somewhere in the middle of nowhere. It's, I think it's misunderstood. Look, and there was a time where I honestly felt bad about it. This, this is what brought me back. I, I, you know, I was in a mastermind where people were really getting on my case and telling me it was a disservice not to sell. Like I felt a little weird about it. I felt a little weird that like all the information is out there and that if I'm going to sell some information, I, you know, I needed some new tactic or new thing. And the reality is people just want to hear some people's voices and they don't want to hear other people's voices. They want to see some product. They resonate with some products. They don't resonate with other products. And, and really that's kind of what brought me back out of the woodwork of feeling like putting myself out there again is like, I'm doing it a service, not selling, right? I'm, I'm doing the people who need to hear me who, or who would resonate with me, but haven't resonated with anybody else. I'm doing them a disservice by not selling to them, by not teaching to them. Yeah. I agree. And, and and it just speaks to the importance also of whatever it is you're selling. Hopefully it's something you actually believe in. Hopefully there's, there's authenticity in the product itself, whether it's physical, digital, uh, a service, whatever. I think as long as, as that product truly is meant in your mind to help people serve people in some way, then yeah, why not? Why not sell them? Well, you know, I love that term, right? Uh, the website's not up yet. So don't go there. But I own authentic ecommerce.com as well. Like this is what I want to teach. I want to teach people who are like you, Brian, selling something they they truly believe in. So I don't want to jump too far in the head, uh, head in the story. But that is what you sell. Like you believe completely in, in what you and I have have partnered on for a business. But uh, before we get there, I want I want to take a step back. How did you transition out of working for your father into like the next step? Because I know you have a bunch of other steps in there where you you know you tested the entrepreneurial waters. 
Yeah, there was a lot. So, so I, I worked for, for my father for about three years. I, I knew pretty early on that was not something I wanted to do. A, I was working for somebody else and it just, it just didn't feel right. Uh, so I, I went back to school when I was doing my sailing, um, and, and doing it professionally, I stopped going to school, which is something I don't regret at all. I'm so glad that I did it. I mean, the experiences that I had were amazing. And, and I decided when I was in my late twenties and, and sort of felt like this wasn't going to work with my father, that the best thing for me to do was to go back to school. In, in hindsight, I, I realize now that that was a little bit of an alibi that that was the easiest way, the easiest excuse for me to come up with to get out of that position without crushing my father, uh, frankly, to, to keep Allie, you know, my wife on board. Um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. I just sort of, I realized that in reflection, um, as time has passed. So I went back to school for two years. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. I, I went back into a business entrepreneurship program at uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills, which is kind of a, it, it's not a well-known, it's, it's in the California state program, but it's not a well-known program or well-known school and, and worked my way through it. I don't, I mean, I look back on it. I almost think I, I'm, I'm unlearning a lot of the things that I was taught during that time. It was not very helpful. I, I remember taking, you know, management classes from, from a, a woman who'd never managed a person in her life and, and was a yoga instructor uh, full-time and did this part-time. I remember taking business communication classes that were telling you how to, how to, do, how to write a resume uh, and, and connect with companies in ways that were completely backwards and wrong in today's market. Uh, but I went, I went through two years of school. It was kind of a good chance for me to sort of reground myself and figure out what I was going to do. And, and at the end of that, I started, I co-founded a company called Fit3D with one of my best friends, Greg Moore. Um, and that would have been in 2012, 2013. And so basically, uh, my, my, my good friend Greg had come up with this concept wherein using these 3D and connect cameras that were very new and cutting edge at the time, we could take three-dimensional images of somebody's body. We would literally put them on a rotating platform, shoot these cameras at you, and it would create a three-dimensional image of a person's body, which we would then use to extract all of their physical measurements, uh, you know, the, the size of your arm, the size of your waist, the size of your belly, um, volume measurements. And, and the idea was we would use, use the image to sort of help motivate people in a fitness and weight loss setting. So we were trying to sell this to gyms, uh, weight loss centers, healthcare facilities, things of that nature. And right, dumb, were, dumb questions incoming. You ready for them? Yeah. Bring it. How is this different than the commercials you see uh, for M Taylor. Uh, it's in truth. I mean, the outcomes aren't all that different. Uh, M Taylor is using, they're using just standard images. I believe, I don't, I don't know it that well. I, and M Taylor was around at the time. And I think if you're, if you're using this for the purpose of sizing clothes, you would say that our model was a lot more specific but even then, I'm not the engineer. I, I could even be wrong, right? I mean, I, I would want to ask Craig to answer those questions. And but at that point... Like, what about like a DEXA scan? Are you familiar with what a DEXA scan is? Yes. Yes. So we were kind of competing against the idea of a DEXA scan. DEXA, DEXA scans are just very expensive and very, very difficult and cumbersome to do. The idea was to put these into 
you know, fitness centers and, and, and weight loss centers, almost like another piece of equipment. And for them to use it as a means of motivating and bringing in members. And then on the back end, what we were doing is creating a whole online platform where people could, they could see, track, analyze their data. And we were also then going to take some time to develop health outcomes, or I shouldn't say health outcomes, health, um, snapshots based on various things. So in other words, we could take, you know, based on empirical data, we could say, okay, your, your waist is this size, your weight is this size, your arms, chest, the, based on these ratios, here is your health rating, right? So it, so the idea was originally to sort of replace BMI as a general measure of physical health, right? Are you, are you obese or not? Are you overweight or not? And what are the, what are the health outcomes that we can expect as a result of all that. So we were so, pretty ambitious. I mean, it was, it was kind of nuts. I mean, we, we were, we, we were trying to develop hardware at the same time as we were trying to develop software at the same time as we were trying to raise money at the same time as we were trying to get early revenue clients to get money in the door. And it was bananas. I, I think it was fun, but it was bananas. I think you're ahead of your time though, right? So Mrs. K, uh, no longer thanks to COVID-19 works for this company, but she worked for one of, uh, what Peter Keller calls them Globo gyms. Uh, one of the name brand gyms in the country. Um, and they have this exact system or very, very similar, right? Not a DEXA scan, not a fit 3d, but it's something very, very similar that they wanted to implement in all their gyms across the country. So like, were you way ahead of your time? Um, you know, is the company still around? I, I guess I don't even know yeah. the answer to that myself. But like, it seems like you were way ahead of your time as far as like bringing this to the masses and, and really making a difference in the fitness world. And I would assume you were going for a licensing play at that point. Yeah. Well, no, we, we were we were not going for a licensing play. Although, I mean, we kind of we were we were young and and didn't necessarily know what we were doing. We were kind of open open to anything, but that was not our intention. Um, I don't know if we were ahead of our time. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess in, in the technology we were, and I think where Greg was really ahead of his time as, as the leader of this whole thing as the, as the primary founder, I, I was just a, a, you know, a co-founder. I was one of three, but you know, Greg was very much the, the main, the main catalyst in all well, this. What year is this? What, uh, 2012, 2013. Okay. And, and I think what he understood very early on is that it wasn't the technology that collected the scans. It wasn't the, the, the platform. What, what he really wanted, what he understood was the value of the data that we were selling. He knew that over time, if we could get enough people scanned, that the, the value of that data to big companies to, you know, to, and, and the things that we could do with it ourselves was, was exponential compared to the hardware and software component of the business. And, he, and to this day, what's really cool, so, so the company is still in business, uh, I left after a year. It, it, the funny story is I made a deal with my wife because at that point uh, she was pregnant with Austin, our first son. Um, I made a deal with my wife that if when Austin was born, if we were still pre-revenue, so if we didn't have either funding or enough revenue to support an income, that that I would leave. And unfortunately, we did make the deadline. So I I literally had, had a job within about two weeks after... Um, after Austin was born. But what one of the things that they do today that they've used that data for, which is really cool, and I, I'm sorry if we're getting off on a tangent, is they created something called Body Block AI. So what they're able to do, and, and they're working with Nike, I think, and, and I think they're working with Roan, if, you're, if anybody's familiar with that clothing line, where you can actually go online, fill out an extremely short survey with a few basic data points about your body, and they can tell you exactly what size you need for every single item in that store. And so it becomes like a sizeless shopping program. 
So you basically, it doesn't say medium, large, extra large. It just gives you the shirt that's your size. You just buy it, which yeah, is I've pretty cool. Pulled up right now. Like they're, uh, looks like they're trusted by brands of all sizes, Pepper and uh, the Warehouse Group, Izod, Adormi, Van Heusen, uh, Roan, as you mentioned, Speedo. Looks like they have quite a few brands on here. Then they're growing. That's that's even news to me, to be honest with you. Oh, I see. The so it's whole, a cool company. Yeah, I see the whole uh, body scanning thing. So are they hoping to put these like into stores? Well, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak for for Greg. I, I mean, I'm I'm not close enough to it anymore to know what their plan is. The sense I get is that basically it's almost kind of it's become two different companies. Fit 3D is still what it is, right? They're still trying to sell these into fitness centers. And, and gyms and use that as a means for, for those facilities to drive memberships and, and potentially use the back end where people are on this platform as a way to create some revenue for Fit3D. Um, and obviously, these, these gyms are also, they're paying for the equipment and, and, and licensing the, uh, um, the software, I believe, things like that. Yeah, this is but, crazy, man. There's legitimately, like, uh, again, I'm just surfing their website. Adore me, the commerce sensation is what they're calling it. Um, I'm not familiar personally. Uh, looks like they sell uh, ladies' undergarments. Uh, so they have a store, and they're saying they have one of these in their fitting rooms. Like, you hop on this scanner, and it's going to tell you, there you go. the right but, stuff you need to buy within their store. That's amazing. What, I mean, last I heard, I think they're almost or even at the point now where they don't even need to scan anymore. Essentially, what they've done is they've scanned so many people that they and they have so much data that they can basically they have a they only need like three or four data points and they can correlate that to the statistical measurement of the rest of your body if that makes sense so you know I, I don't know what those things are but based on your your age weight chest size and waist size they can basically tell exactly what the rest of your body likely looks like so I gotta know I mean I don't even know this and I know you pretty well I, are you still somewhat part of this company is there some futures you hung on to as you uh as you exited to have your first son yeah very little i i, I think who knows what i've been deluded to because they've, they've been through a few rounds of funding i mm. i uh, i think i'm like around maybe a little less than one percent I'm, I'm not exactly sure but um it's probably something i should follow up with greg on but if if, if he wasn't one of my one of my best friends in the world i'd probably worry about it but i, I just don't i've known him since i was in high school we've been close for a long time I should. It's, it seems like a, a someone I'd want to interview. This looks in, incredible. Uh, if you're listening, go to fit the number three, the letter D, fit three D dot com. Uh, it's pretty cool technology. Yeah, definitely look at uh, what did I search to get here? Bodyblock.ai, I think is what you said. Uh, yeah, yeah Bodyblock.ai is the. I think that's right. That's that's the other company. That's the. I think it's a second company that was created using the the data and algorithms that came out of fit three D. So I'm hearing stuff I didn't even know, Brian, which is amazing. I love hearing that on the podcast. But like you had Austin. Uh, are you still in California at this time? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, so in, in the in one like 10 month period, uh, almost almost a year, I started with Fit 3D. Uh, Allie got pregnant. We bought a house in Lakewood, California because it was like the only neighborhood left in Southern California that we could afford to buy at that time. And, and then Austin was born and then I left fit 3d and got another job all, all within a 12 month period between late 2012 and late 2013. So yeah. I, I'm and not I sure renovated I remember, that house. Yeah. I'm not sure. I remember your story from back then. So you bought a house, you, you have Austin, you leave fit 3d 
And then you got a job. I don't remember you telling me this. So what, what did you get for a job and how did that go? So I called a good friend of mine, Lori Sewell, who is now, I think, the CEO or president of a company called Servicon. And Servicon was one of my biggest customers when I worked for my father. So Servicon is a commercial cleaning contractor and, and they, do, they basically do the, the cleaning for most of the aerospace buildings and facilities in Southern California. They do a lot of biotech, a lot of hospitals, healthcare, things like that. And, um, and Lori was just one of the coolest people I had ever met at that point. She, she and I had, we hadn't even worked together all that much because I didn't get up to her level very often when I was selling, but we always bonded and she had a close relationship with my father too. And so I always just knew she would be a great person to work for. And so she was one of the first people that I just called, I believe out of the blue saying, look, I'm looking for work. Um, you know, what, what are you guys, what are you guys up to? And, and she was awesome. She basically said, I think I have the perfect job for you. We're trying to develop a whole new training center. Um, they, were, they were literally building this, this lead platinum. And if you don't know what lead is, lead is like a, it's a, it's a cert, uh, certification of the sustainability of a building, the, the environmental um, impacts of a building. And they wanted to create this killer um, training and education program for their primarily for their employees and, and also for, for customers and things like that. And if, if you can imagine this is a commercial cleaning contractor, it's a lot of, you know, low wage near, um, n- near minimum wage, um, workers in, in Southern California, it's a lot of non-English speaking people. Um, but she, along with the owner of this company, just, just had this tremendous passion for wanting to serve her people and educate them and better their lives. And so she said, I want you to come in. You, you can help with, with sales and marketing a little bit too, but I want you to create this whole new training and education program that we have envisioned. Um, and, and so it was cool. So I, I came in, I mean, started within like a week or two. It, it was, it was, you know, it was not much of a negotiation. And, and the, the irony of it is that I don't even know that I ever really did what I was supposed to do. I I, I came in and thankfully, the only reason I, I, I worked there for two years, the only reason I survived was because Lori let me kind of do what I wanted to do. Um, she, she just sort of, you know, not directly, but she just sort of supported me and knew that I was always, anything that I did was always supposed to be in the best interest of the company. So I got heavily involved in some of the marketing things we were going to, we were doing. Um, I sort of put together a, um, a strategy program because I felt like at that time, the whole company was just sort of, you know, it was shooting first and aiming later. So, so at, at first I actually ran a, a whole strategy uh, set of meetings with all of the, the, you know, the owners and key stakeholders of the company. And again, I just did this on my own impetus. I didn't ask, I just sort of did it. And she was just like, yeah, go, you know, you're doing great. Um, and it just led into, into all these, all these th- different things for the company. Um, and so it, it was a, it was two years in a very entrepreneurial role, uh, where I kind of had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. And, and I really didn't get much done. Like I said, in terms of the training and education program that, that they had envisioned, just because it seemed like that was a little bit secondary to some of the other things that needed to happen for the company. Um, and you know, I'm just thankful that Lori, Lori tolerated me. She was like my biggest fan. <laughs> and, 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 and to some degree, I think we were kindred spirits. I think she's kind of the same way. But even then, e- even in those perfect circumstances, working for a great 
per, uh, person around great people. I had great, some great friends that I worked along with. Um, I got to do whatever the heck I wanted to do. I still was miserable. I, I mean, if I'm honest, I, it just was not for me. I, I just, I still didn't like working for somebody else. Um, so around two years into that, um, we started getting um, calls from Ali's father asking us to get involved in a business that he was doing. Um, and she, he, he and, and now his, his deceased wife, uh, Ali was Ali's stepmother. Um, they had all kinds of grand plans for some new businesses there in the, in the healthcare field. He currently owns a, a, a like a compounding pharmacy, a, a very like, uh, how would I say this? Like progressive, um, uh, health facility. Um, yeah, what's a compounding pharmacy? I don't even know what that is. So com- compounding is, is how farm pharmaceuticals used to be made instead of being sort of mass produced in pills, they're custom made to the person. So, so the really common things that, that come out of, of most compound pharmacies would be like, um, uh, like, like hormone, hormone, um, therapy, um, medications and, and things like that. Um, custom pain medications. I'm probably, I'm butchering this a little bit. It's been a long time since I've been in the business, but it's all, it's all about tailoring the, the dose, the, the substrate, um, and, and the medication to the person into the specific set of circumstances, as opposed to just sort of mass producing stamps for, or or, uh, I'm sorry, mass producing pills for, for the average person. Um, and, and by nature, they tend to be involved with very progressive forward thinking doctors that, um, that, that maybe that are, that are engaged in more modern, um, type treatments than just yeah, the personalized traditional. healthcare too, right? Like, yes. Yeah. Very, very, you know, very much like functional medicine, very all inclusive medicine. It's not just, okay, sounds like you have this, so I'm going to give you this. It's more like, okay, let's, let's find the underlying problems inside the person. Which, knowing you, as long as I've known you, that you're, you know, very much into that style of medicine, right? Like you're very much into functional medicine and, and truly, you know, deep diving into your health. Absolutely. And, and, and frankly, a lot of that was also brought out by Ali's father and, and, and stepmom Lynn. Um, and, and so right around the end of that time when I was at Servicon, she passed away and she was just a massively important person in the business. And so he basically asked us to come up and get involved, uh, which we did. So, so we moved up to San Luis Obispo, California. We weren't even there for a year. I mean, it was a really short time, but that's where, that's where the business was based. And we got involved and, and the, the main, the main venture that we were involved in, it, it didn't really work out. The, the partnership that he had with, with other people was kind of, was kind of doomed to fail from the beginning. I think they just weren't really well aligned partners, but, um, but Ali and I always kind of say that that was, that was meant to happen, right? Even, even when, when I left Servicon and at the time she was working for a big internet marketing company called W promote, which is based in El Segundo. Um, she was actually their CFO at the time. Um, we both agreed that at that point we were looking for a way out and we kind of had a sense that it was a 50, 50 shot that this was going to work out this, this venture that we were going up there for. And we just sort of looked at it as, okay, this is the catalyst we need to get us out of this working for other people situation. If this doesn't work out, then, you know, at, at least now our, now our ass is under the fire. We have to do something to, to, you know, to make money for ourselves. And we'd always wanted our own business. We'd had tons of ideas over the years, 
we both sort of had that entrepreneurial draw and, um, and so we, we always kind of knew that, that this, you know, we, we could have been in a position within it, within some period of time after leaving our jobs, moving up to Cal- central California, starting with this company that we might actually end up having to, to move on and do our own thing. And that's what ended up happening. Yeah, but how, you know, to put that in perspective, number one, you're living in California, which as a Wisconsin boy, uh, sounds expensive and terrible, uh, other than the weather. Uh, and then you have a two year old son on top of that. Right. And so, how it couldn't have been an easy decision for you to just say, yep, we're just going to risk it all and, and, and hop into this company. Honestly, maybe it was, um, I don't remember it being a hard decision. I, I mean, certainly we had a few hard conversations, but it was, I, the challenge was not, was not believing that we could make something happen. The challenge was knowing when, when the writing was on the wall, right? It, the, the challenge was, was, was coming to the realization that, okay, what, what, you know, what this is, what we're doing now, this is disintegrating. Let's not, let's not ride, you know, write it into the ground. Let's acknowledge that. And let's, you know, let's take action now, which is essentially what we did. And, and, and we also, you know, we had both done really well. We, we, we made a lot of money um, in our time when I was working at, at Servicon and even, and even for the startup and Ali made a lot of money at W Promote. We saved a lot of money. Um, so we, you know, we had a good amount of cushion at the time and, and, um, you know, we felt okay about it. Um, I sort of, I sort of laugh. It just seems forever ago. Cause <laughs> I don't know where that cushion went. I'm not sure what happened. Um, but, um, yeah, I, it, it was not a hard decision. I, I feel like we, we were sort of waiting for it to happen for almost a year. We just, we sort of figured it was going to come at some point and, and thankfully we took some, we took action pretty quickly and, 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 you know, things seem to have worked out pretty, pretty well for the long run. But you move up here to help like the family business essentially, right? Yeah. Uh, how long does, does that go on? Again, I met you, gosh, I don't know, 2016, um, on the, on the internets. Right. And, and so like, how long did that go on before you transitioned to, you know, taking a course online to, to learn how to drop ship? Well, first of all, you make it sound like we met in a chat room somewhere. Uh, we did. <laughs> so, so this is a little awkward. Um, so, so, oh, okay. So, so help me understand which, which part are you asking about? See, like you, you took this risk, go to San Luis, Luis Obispo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, home of Chuck Liddell, in case anybody ever wants to know that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then you, like, how did you go from there and transition to, uh, you know, wanting to work online? Uh, and you're in Colorado. Like, how did, how did all of that transition happen? Yeah. So I, if I would say that we were, we were considering and testing various online you know, business ideas throughout the time that we were in San Luis Obispo. And I think it would, if I recall, it was kind of implied that as part of, as part of us working up there, that we would also sort of be free to, to entertain our own uh, ventures. And in fact, I even remember there were a couple other opportunities that came up with, with Ali's, Ali's dad. Um, aside from what we started, we're, we actually, we, we considered partnering with them on some other business businesses wherein we would be the online, um, you know, arm of the company, we would sell things online and they would, they would manage the, the in-person stuff. Um, so, so we were, we kind of had our eye on it the whole time. And, um, you know, it, it, as far as, as the transition from, it just, it just sort of happened organically. I, what, what I'm not, what I, I guess what I'm not including in the whole story is that, 
we had sort of been daydreaming about this for for years probably. And Allie having been working for an online, you know, uh, online digital marketing agency for years, you know, we were, we were kind of cl- closely tied to the industry and, and had a lot of connection to it. So we, it was always there. Um, it just got more real as we, as we sort of got to the point where we realized that the, the things that we were doing just weren't working. Um, and then, you know, as, and then as far as like, you know, we, we lived in San Luis Obispo for a year, which was as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's like the best place in the world to live. If I, if I could live anywhere independent of, of, you know, finances, that's probably where I would, I would be. But on the other hand, we had a, you know, 1200 some foot house that, that we, you know, I think, I think we spent like $3,000 a month on our mortgage. I mean, it was insanity how expensive it was and we're trying to start a business. And, and at that point we actually had two kids because, because Jackson, my, my youngest was born, uh, while we were still in San Luis Obispo. And so, so we ended up in Colorado just because, Hey, we wanted to get out of California you know, because it was start- starting to feel a little bit crazy and maybe not the best place to raise kids. And B, we just wanted to reduce our cost of, of living and get out of California. All right. So I'm missing some loose ends there. You're in San Luis Obispo. Uh, you have Jackson, which uh, I'm going to say, honestly, I forgot his name because you call him Bucky so often. Uh, you have both your kids, uh, and then you decided to go to Colorado. Where, where is the, like, we're transitioning online and like, was there, was there, I, know, I met you taking a course on, on high ticket drop shipping. Right. Um, and so was there some failed attempts before there? Did you try some other businesses or like, what was no. keeping you afloat as you moved to Colorado? No, it, uh, nothing. Uh, I mean, savings at that point. So we also, the first thing we dabbled in was I actually took a course by Ramit Sethi, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the course. I can't remember exactly, but it was, it was, it was a, a you know, a, an early entrepreneurship program it designed to help you come up with the, you know, the concept, the idea, you know, figure out what, what niche you want to, you want to, to be a part of what your unique selling proposition is, develop a business, you know, a, a basic business plan around it. Um, but, but yeah, ultimately we ended up coming across, um, dropship lifestyle, which, which obviously you've come across as well. Um, and I remember having the conversation with Allie cause we had various different, we had various ideas. And for the life of me, I can't even remember what the other ideas were that we had. I probably have it on a spreadsheet somewhere, but I think what we decided was that, that physical products and specifically at that point, starting with drop shipping might be the fastest and shortest uh, you know, road to, you know, revenue, right. Towards, towards a a functioning business that anything else could take months and months and months, if not years in order to get started. And, and, and I remember that being the sort of the the tiebreaker that we would, we would do that. In fact, actually, I do remember, um, one of the people that we brought in when I was working at Servicon, we actually brought in a strategy consultant who had kind of mentored me a little bit throughout that process. And I really, to this day, I still idolize him. He was a, just an incredibly smart man and was just very efficient at helping drum out the real purpose and the real different differentiation and, and, and create direction for companies that, that maybe are directionless at the time. And I really wanted to do that. I've always wanted to, to do that. Um, and so I was, I, I remember actually talking with him about, about possibly shadowing him and, 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 and apprenticing to some degree to see if I could learn to do what he does. Um, and, and I remember him basically telling me like, look, you either, but I, I also told him that we were thinking about doing this drop shipping 
you know, program and, and starting this drop shipping business. And he's like, look, I think you need to choose one or the other. And so he basically said, I'm only going to let you do this. If, if you go all in with me, if you want to do this other thing, then go do it. Um, and, and, and I think I'm glad that he did that. So, so we, we went all in, we, you know, I, I went through the, the dropship lifestyle course as a means of, you know, learning how to set up my store and, getting acquainted with e-commerce. I knew how to sell at that point, but I didn't know all the technical stuff. And, um, and, and, and the rest is history. It took me a long time. It took me about six months. So, so between, I want to say February of 2016, when um, basically we decided that I no longer had a job and, and it was time for me to start this business. And August or September, when we really started selling, we moved to Colorado. Um, and we had a whole bunch of a whole bunch of things change. So it took me a long time. But as of September of 2016, we were selling standing desks and 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 various sit stand and ergonomic products, and and um, things started to take off within within a few months. And the rest is history, as they say. But was your was your wife still working? Uh, you know, to help pay the bills as you no. transitioned from California to Colorado. This whole time, you're living off savings. Uh, as you get started with your own e-commerce business, yeah, yeah. So, so she worked for a few more weeks, but but ultimately she she got out in a hurry, and 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 very much a big part of of the whole idea was that she was she wanted to have more time to stay home with the kids. For years, we had we had sort of dreamed of that being a possibility that that I could primarily support the family and she could she could take care of the kids. Uh, obviously, that was hard to do in California, and so that that was a big part of of reducing our cost of living. She she's she is still involved in our business. She does all of our finance and accounting because that's kind of her her expertise. But um, no, but it's, it it explains a little bit, right? Like we're we're all either chasing pleasure or running away from pain, right? And so uh, if you're living off savings and you're moving, you know, to another state, uh, there's going to be a reason why you want to get this moving faster, right? And get this going and and. Uh, that sense of urgency is something I, I wish you could flip a switch and create like that back against the wall feeling. There's nothing like it. And, and shit just gets done. Uh, and it's something, like I said, I wish I could recreate it every single morning of like that sense of urgency. And I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I'm sure we've all been there where there's no other options. Uh, no one's coming to rescue you, right? Like you have to get this figured out and amazing things come out of that. Yeah. And, and, and nothing, nothing makes you feel that way. Like having, a family to support, uh, you know, I, I, you know, we've, you and I have been around a lot of younger people that, that are um, doing that, that have done the same things that we have done, right. We've both coached people in their early twenties, maybe even late teens that are starting their own e-commerce stores. And to some, some degree, I just, um, I, I, I'm so, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? I, 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 I wish I could be them, right? I wish I could have started at such an early age, right? The head start that they have and, and the intelligence they have to, to be doing that at such a young age is just awesome. I love it. On the other hand, there's no way they could ever compete with that mentality that, that we have as a result of having our backs against the wall and having people to support. Look, I, we've both coached a lot and we can get into that a little bit, but um, one thing I've noticed with coaching younger people who've got a much uh, better head start than than we did, right? I didn't start until I was in my thirties. I think you're the same. Um, they they don't give any fucks, like none. Like they have a hustle that I can't explain because they don't care. Um, and I remember caring a lot when I was younger, like the judgment of people and like, uh, is this going to work? And I know I'm an overthinker the way it is, but everyone I've coached that's young, they they don't care. They they work pretty hard, honestly. 
Um, and they, they don't seem to care about opinions of others or whether something's going to work or not. They don't seem to care about that. Uh, what if I fail that I, I feel like the older generation I've coached, and I'm, I don't even want to say older, like 30 and above. And especially people that have coached later in their lives. Um, they seem to care a whole lot more of like, what if this doesn't work? Yeah. I mean, and frankly, I wish that was me, right? I, I, I wish I had been doing it when I was 20 years old because, because the fact is you don't have anything to, to lose. Honestly, you know, if, you, if you're 22 years old, you spend some money and your business fails, who gives a, a rip? You go, you know, you go live in your parents' house for a few months and, and start something new and, and you keep trying until you find something that works, right? Um, maybe, maybe that's part of it, right? I mean, there's a fearlessness that you can have when you literally have, um, when you have very little to worry about when you have very little to lose. And it's, it's a, it's a respectable position to to start a business in. Yeah. I feel like we should all have that anyway though, right? Like what's the worst case scenario if you took a, a new dive into something? Like if you painted out that worst case scenario, how long would it take you to get back? I think that's in like the four hour work week or something, right? Like right out the worst case scenario yeah, and how setting. long would it take you to, yeah. How long would it take you to get back to where you are now? And I don't, I don't think it would be that long. Right. And then maybe you, you'd be able to minimize that risk. But I, you know, I envy those young folks who've got a good start. I just got done consulting with uh, a couple brothers that are like 23 and 25 and they have a big business. Um, and they work harder than most people I know. They just have another gear. Uh, and I'm definitely envious of that. I wish back when I was 23 or 25, I wasn't, uh, you know, drinking a lot of beers and playing a lot of online poker uh, that I was, you know, growing uh, the business of my dreams. Yeah, no question. And also, you know, they also probably had the advantage of not having wives and kids that they they have to dedicate time to. I mean, look, if you and I were living alone, right? If if I If I didn't have a family right now, I'd work seven days a week and I'd enjoy it. You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really mind. I, I think I'd love it. Um, but I love hanging out with my kids and my wife even more, you know? And so there's, yeah, but you kind of bring that seven days a week to your kids, right? So I went out and, and visited Brian, uh, spent a, I don't know, a good four or five days at your house. Um, and you guys, you, you, like you woke up super early, you drove to the donut shop, uh, bought a bunch of donuts that, uh, in the end, me and you ended up eating a bunch of them, but you, uh, you set up this stand and put a sign on the road and was like, you know, donuts for sale today. Right. Like you're trying to instill this in your kids and, and really spending time with them, uh, through entrepreneurship, which is pretty cool. For sure. Yeah. And, and frankly, I'm always trying to think of ways to get better about this because if, if there's a number one thing that I worry about them not getting from, from school and from the school system in general, it's an understanding of, of, of how to create value in the world as a means of, you know, supporting yourself, so to speak. So it's, it's like, it's like maybe arbitrage is kind of the word, but I think that has a negative connotation. It's basically creating value and, and finding ways to then, you know, get things in return for creating that value. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we tried the donut shop thing. We, we definitely, it, it wasn't perfect. We, we built that whole thing around a trip to Disneyland. So we basically said, if you guys raise enough money, we'll buy tickets to Disneyland and go. And what we found is that a, at that time, a three and a five-year-old really struggled to see six months into the future and get excited about going to Disneyland way out in the future. So we've learned now that if you're going to do that, it's got to be for like, we're going to sell donuts today and then we're going to go buy some Legos. And they're going to really internalize the value of the work they put in and the money that they earned in that scenario. But I'm always looking for ways to 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 try and 
deepen that that understanding because I think that the hustle that comes out of that and and the understanding I, I want them to know in their hearts that there are infinite numbers of ways to to support yourself and to, and to make money in this world and I want them to feel like they can access any of those things when they need it right I want them I want them to be fearless like those people that you're talking about because they this sure. doesn't work they've got they've got idea number two three four five and six on the list. The weird part is like trying to explain it though. Right. So your kids are around the same age as the twins that are in this house. Uh, and really trying to explain Like, you know, we spent a lot of time together now that we're all, uh, quarantined to our house, uh, really trying to help them understand, uh, the value of money and how we're exchanging, uh, value, right? Like they're addicted to their Alexas. Uh, and I don't blame if I was a kid, I'd be addicted to my Alexa too, singing songs and dancing. Um, and sometimes we have to turn them off. If I'm in a very important meeting, I want to make sure like right now they're not using their Alexas, right? I want to make sure this is getting recorded well on zoom. Uh, and so trying to uh, like help them understand what do, what do I do all day? How am I'm exchanging value in the world? How, uh, some people have jobs and some people create the jobs and like, uh, like a shirt showed up today. I bought a long sleeve shirt. It's, it's still a little brisk out here and I like to walk every day. Uh, and we were trying to explain how this shirt was value to me. Right. And I exchanged money for, for the value. And, um, boy, it really takes you to a special place when you're trying to instill that in children and help them understand the, the, the value exchange and that you can do a million different things and, uh, create value in this world. Yeah. I, it's much easier with the, with our six-year-old than it is with our four-year-old. There's no question about it. I, you know, my, my feeling is they mostly don't get it. I, you know, we, we always have this conversation, Allie and I, where, where she, she'll kind of hit me with, uh, you know, they're, they're not old enough. They don't understand. Right. Or, or, you know, their brains aren't developed. I remember having the conversation of cause and about cause and effect, right. Somewhere in the range of like two to four years old is when kids start to understand the, the relationship between cause and effect, right. If, if I do this bad thing, I'm not going to be allowed to play with this toy or watch TV, right? They, they don't make the connections until a certain age. And so Allie and I always had this ongoing debate, right? She's like, well, look, they're, they're not old enough. Like, stop trying, to, stop trying to, to get them to understand. And my response was, look, my feeling is that this is, this, is a, this is a matter of quantity over quality. At some point, they're going to get it. I don't know when the moment is that it's going to click or it's going to start to Please tell me when they get it, it Brian. But, but, get but it? you know what? I, I'm just going to keep trying. Eventually, hopefully they will have heard it so many times that it will just, it'll just be in there. Whether they ever, whether there was a light bulb that went off or not, I don't know. But hopefully I said it enough times, I reinforce it often enough that they get it. And you're right. Now is like the perfect time to be working on, you know, on these kinds of things because it's, you know, they're all home and, and it's not something that they're getting while they're at school. That's for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's not something they're learning. And, um, we're, we're, we're trying to do the same thing. Teach them stuff that they're not going to learn when hopefully they, you know, go to kindergarten next year, back to school next but, year. But I mean, uh, here's the other thing, right? We're sort of we're sort of reinforcing my point. I mean, we, the fact that we just spent 10 minutes talking about this reinforces how it is harder to to put 100% of your focus into your business when when this is th- this is more important, right? When you have kids that need to learn these things and and they need connection with their parents and and frankly, you know, my kids are six and four and they're still cute and they still mostly like daddy. Um, I know it's not going to be like that forever. And so, so being an entrepreneur with a six and a four-year-old, it has its advantages and it has its disadvantages. The advantage is my back's up against the wall and I will literally do anything to make sure that my family is supported. The disadvantage is I spend a lot of my, you know, a lot of my, my mental capacity, a lot of my time 
goes to them, you know, and, and I'm okay with that. But you know, that's, that's the, that's the trade off of being an entrepreneur in your late thirties as opposed to your early twenties. But I mean, do you think there's value in showing them that like doing what you love is important as well, right? Like finding time for yourself. Like I, I fucking love e-commerce. I could stare at uh, different marketing strategies and like brainstorm stuff all day long. I'm always have a podcast going. I'm always looking at one of my screens uh, or reading on Twitter. Like e-commerce Twitter is incredible, by the way. If you're not part of that, go join that. Um, I'm always consuming um, and I really, really enjoy it or I'm always pontificating. And so I think there's value in showing them that like, you know, spend time doing what you love. And and for them, it might not be entrepreneurship like this. I'm very, very fortunate to have found what I really like to do. And I'm pretty darn good at it. Like I, that, that's, that's something amazing. And, and maybe for them, it's, it's dancing or, or whatever it ends up being singing or something like that. Right. And I think there is some value in, in, you know, not, not spending time with them and, and really investing in yourself too, and kind of showing them that, them that that's important. Yeah, no, th- that's true. Um, and, and, and frankly, some of that they just sort of probably watch and see, right? And some of it probably means you have to you have to sort of bring them into the room a little bit, which is something I, I need to do more of. Um, I, I'm starting to, like you alluded to earlier, we actually just shot a little a little video with the kids um, for uh, for for uh, one of our businesses for In Movement. So I, I'm kind of excited to to for that to go online and to be able to show them that, and and then to sort of uh, you know get excited with me. I, I hope that they have the same entrepreneurial spirit that you and I have, you know, if they want to be a doctor or whatever, that's fine. Frankly, it's not all that different, right? I, I just want them to have that entrepreneurial spirit that, that if, if I, if I find some way to create value in the world, the world will take care of me. Um, if they get that and, and they, and they find something that they can be passionate about and that doesn't suck the life out of them, which, you know, it does for so many people, then, I will be the happiest father ever. I think that's what it's Look, all about. I, I'm with you on that last point, right? Like, I don't care what it is. Whatever it is that makes you happy is what you should be doing. I know too many people who are in a situation like I was in. Like, you're just trying to make ends meet. You're just trying to get to that next paycheck. You don't really see a way out. Um, and, you know, it's scary to take those risks. But, like, we all have a, a, a talent within us. And it might be a really weird talent, like underwater basket weaving or something like that. But you're great at something. And you're also really, really enjoy something. And if you can marry those two, I don't care what it is. I don't care whether you're working for someone, honestly. Uh, I just want I, I just want everyone to be happy. I think that's what it boils down to. And so, um, but I, I do admire, like, the entrepreneurship you're trying to instill in your kids at the same time that, it's what I strongly agree with that you don't need to work for somebody that you can create value in a million different ways. I hope this podcast shows that there's a bunch of people I want to interview that are doing some really, really weird things like uh, they record a a very niche Minnesota twins podcast uh, and they put it on Patreon that you pay a dollar to listen to them talk about the twins when they're not even playing um, because of coronavirus and like they're making a living off things like that. And I I don't know, this world's amazing. I just, I want to spread that message of you can do whatever you want and create value and, and be happy. You know, the business model, that I have just been obsessed with lately is um, I, I've in the last year or two, I've gotten really into YouTube. I mean, I've always been a YouTube fan, like, like anybody has, but I've in the last year or two, it's the first time I've really started following YouTube channels and watching weekly or biweekly or, or, or regular shows of various you know, from various different people. And, and the, this model that a lot of these people have created, we're in their, creating these amazing videos, mostly just about their lives, right? I mean, really, they're just, they're just telling their story and telling it in a very beautiful and, and personal um, and, and um, 
authentic way with, with great, um, um, great visuals. And they're collecting a little bit of money from YouTube. But what most of them seem to be doing is they, they set up Patreon channels and they basically say, look, if you think we create value for you, if you like going on this journey with us, we would love for you to support us. And these guys are making great money. They have great lifestyle businesses, making videos for people that follow them around the world or whatever it is mm. that they do. It's not something that I could do, but I just, I, gosh, I just think what those people have it. What a, what a great way to live. Look, I think we get to that model in the future, right? Where you're actually like paying for the value and there's not one person who rules the roost. Like right now, Google, YouTube, right, is the place for video. Uh, and your way to monetize that, at least on their platform, is to run ads. But I, I do feel like um, eventually you're going to move to a platform where you're just paying each person. Kind of like the, you know what, like Disney Plus or ESPN Plus or things like that. Like I think everyone's going to be able to have that ability in the future. I think Patreon's the first step to that. I know there's a cryptocurrency called Tron uh, that's trying to do the same thing. They want to set up a platform like that and you pay little, you know, fractions of Tron to people when you consume their content. But I do think that's the future, right? Like uh, I've contemplated that with this podcast in the future. Can I, can I sit here and have a conversation with Brian Angel for an hour and a half, uh, just about life and your journey. And when it comes to like the hardcore business stuff, can I say head you know, if you really enjoyed this conversation with Brian, head over to, you know, benkenagendorf.com slash Patreon. And we'll really like deep dive into our standing desk companies and talk about the marketing efforts that are working there. Right. And, and that's where they can get a little bit more or, you, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's the future of, of everyone. Honestly, like we can all provide this value. I think that's where the world's shifting to over the last 10 years. Kids are now, you know, they went from wanting to be athletes to wanting to be entrepreneurs to wanting to be YouTube stars. Like, I feel like that's the future. I hope that's correct. I, I certainly, I also just feel like, uh, you know, that sort of model that, that Patreon model is like, it's like the truest form of, of value creation and, and then receiving value in return. Right. It's, 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 it's completely, uh, unrelated. Well, you could sort of say it's sort of, it's sort of outside of the, the model of, of traditional supply and demand. It's just in this moment, you, you make my life better. And I in turn want to make your life better. There's something so, there's such a, an amazing connection about that, that I really love. I, granted those people that are doing it, I, what, what I think we don't see is how hard they work, right? How much time they're spending editing videos and, and, shooting a shot and then having to go back and get their camera and then make the same walk again and, and, and shooting things over and over again. You know, we, we miss a lot of the hard stuff. So I think it's probably idealized, but there still is, there's just something very pure about that, that synergistic relationship between the viewer and the creator. You know what this just brought me back to actually, I know a guy, he's at my Minneapolis meetup um, and he, he does SEO for some big, big companies. And one day I was asking him like, you know, where do you learn what's, what's next? What's cutting edge? And this is so off topic. I'm sorry, Brian. But like, I asked him like, where is, where's the cutting edge stuff come from? And he said, porn. And I had to sit there for a minute and be, you know, I thought he was joking. Right. But he's right. Like, uh, porn, they, they were the first ones to have pop-ups on your screen and chatbots and, uh, like everything originated there. And this whole Patreon thing, it, it started there too. Right. Like I think only fans, Patreon. Yes. It was, it was girls like selling, you know, exclusive photos, right. Or like personalized photos. And that like, that's, it, it started way back there. Right. Like, uh, look, I'm totally okay with this stuff. I'm, I'm not trying to bring it down. I'm just, it, it really sparked in my mind. Like, holy shit, everything does start from porn. <laughs> I've never heard that. I, it, I mean, it, it's probably true. I, I, I don't, uh, I wouldn't discredit it.
Uh, I think I think OnlyFans is the same way. But uh, sorry to get way off topic there. It just really brought me back to that guy saying everything starts with porn. Like this started with porn too. But I, look, I think there's I think exchanging value like that one for one is definitely the future. Like I'm so happy to pay. And I'm just a junkie for the Minnesota Twins, but I'm so happy to pay them a buck. Like honestly, a buck an episode. It's it's an hour and a half. It fills my whole walk uh, at one point five x, and I could listen to them talk about nothing all day long. And I'm so happy to give them a dollar. And so are thousands of other people, which is just shocking. Like there's a group of people for everyone in this world. Yeah, and I think there's an aspect of it too. Uh, there's there's a real karma um, around that sort of that that transaction, right? T- to me. Uh, um, so there's, there's a couple channels that I, I think I spent, I send like a dollar to or something like that. For me, it's, it's sailing, right? I, I grew up um, racing sailboats and I grew up sailing. I now live in Colorado. I'm married to a wife who literally can't drive a mile in a car without getting motion sick. So, you know, boats are way, way outside of, um, you know, my family plans anymore. But I watch a couple channels on YouTube that sort of take me around the world and sort of make me feel like I'm sailing. And there's something I think part of the of the sense that I have when I'm when I'm donating a dollar is that I hope that if that were me, somebody would be giving that dollar to me, right? It, it, and so so it is it's true, true. You know what what goes around comes around type of value and a type of transaction where I I truly hope I'm doing this because I would want them to do it for me too. That's pretty cool. So just out of curiosity, is yours more of a donation thing or are you subscribing to something exclusive and paying that extra for it's it? A, it's a Patreon thing. Yeah, but are they giving you extra content yes. behind that I think paywall? they do. I don't okay. pay any attention to it. I don't even care. I I, I, I don't engage in that. And frankly, I, I'm not I'm not a hardcore follower. I just pick it up. I just I just think, wow, these people, you know, what they're doing is amazing. They obviously put a ton of heart and soul into into what they do. I want to follow them around the world. And and frankly, it would break my heart if they if they stopped. Not because my life would would end tomorrow because I don't have this show to watch, but but in, in some way I just want to know that they're out there sailing the world and living the way they do. Uh, and so I want to just do my part to to support them. And frankly, if we were in a better better financial position, I'd probably send them more. Nice. Yeah, I mean so the one I follow is is uh straight up podcast. They have a free one they do weekly. Uh, and I'm thinking of this Minnesota Twins podcast, and I know there's a ton of people doing this. So they do a free one weekly, and then they do like midweek shows uh, where they'll do anywhere from like one to three shows, especially during the season. They'll do more like people just want to consume content, right? Especially me. I'm a junkie. I'm watching every single game. Uh, I want more. And so uh, they charge a dollar per episode for those. Uh, so if you're a subscriber, you'll get charged, you know, anywhere from like $1 to, I think the most I was ever charged was like $14 a month. And I'm so happy to pay that, right. Uh, to consume a little more content. So I was curious if, if the guys you were following, uh, you know, were putting something behind the paywall. Yeah, as well. I, I think I th- there's a few different things there. Are, there is access to, they have extra videos and then depending on your level of Patreon support, it, in the, in the case of at least one of the videos, they will actually invite people on the boat. Like they'll have, they'll have regular drawings and say, come, come stay with us. Come, you know, come spend a week with us on the boat. We'll, you know, we'll sail around the Bahamas or whatever it is, or, or come for a, you know, a day meetup. I mean, they, they find great ways to, to create extra value, probably more than they even need to create, but, um, but there definitely is some premium level of service that they get. But this is a testament to what we're talking about, right? Like I could 
give a f about sailing i just, I don't care right like i love that you love it and and you probably could care less that i like the twins i know you're a baseball guy but you don't care about me talking you know deep statistics about byron buxton i like uh, the twins when but they play like the dodgers we, that's about it there you go there you go uh like but we all have our own thing and like the internet is beautiful for this this is exactly again why i want to get authentic e-commerce going i think everybody can talk about whatever it is that they geek out about and, and sell physical products behind that uh, or digital products uh, and have a good living and be happy and really like be in the community that, that they love. Yeah. And I, and I just think the, to, to use like really, um, uh, you know, overused terms, I think sort of the, you know, the gig economy, the, the internet makes it easier to do this, right. It, it makes it easy. There are just so many different ways to create value now because we're so connected that, um, that the opportunities to, to do what you love, to, to, to be in a field that you're passionate about, even if it's not your greatest passion, just to be in something that you're passionate about, you know, the opportunity is bigger than it's, than it's ever been. Look, and you took uh, a path that, that I took as well, except you took it in something you actually care about. So like, let's circle all the way back. We kind of went on a long tangent there, but that's fine. Uh, like you started with a company uh, standingdestination.com. If anybody wants to check out Brian's company that he started with dropshipping. Um, and now together we own standingdestination.com and we own a brand of standing desk and treadmill desk, uh, in movement.com. But you started, you know, from the dropshipping model, you started selling other people's products and this was your entry into something that you care a lot about, which is, is movement and staying healthy. Can you talk a little bit about like how, you know, the fact that you actually care about this stuff helped you, you know, cruise along in the beginning and helped you grow this company? Yeah. I, I mean, for me, the the process of of figuring out what I wanted to do, what what our what Ali and my first business was going to be, it began with, you know, it, it began with what niche or what product or what you know what is the what is the value that we want to sell, right? Before we started talking about the model, and we had a, we had a lot of different ideas, um, and and so. For me, in when I was working at Servicon, um, so going back to that time, Servicon was the, the commercial cleaning company that I worked for. At that point, I spent a lot of time in front of a desk, and I was one of the early adopters. I convinced Lori, my um, my CEO at the time, to buy me a uh, a standing desk. I think it was it was a Vera desk at the time when 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 they were very new. They were not popular yet, uh, and and it frankly changed my life. I had been having back problems. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fitness guy at that time. I was really into cross, still am really into CrossFit and I was having some back issues that I, you know, realized were largely connected to my, my, you know, sitting all day, every day. Plus at that point I had a two hour commute each way, almost probably more like an hour and a half, but I was commuting into Culver city in Southern California, which is just a nightmare commute. So between the, you know, the two or three hours a day I was spending driving and, and, you know, commuting and the eight to nine hours I was spending sitting in the office. And that doesn't even include sitting on the couch, sitting at dinner, sitting on the throne. You know, it, it was just, it was crushing my back. So I, I got this standing desk thinking that it was going to be, um, it was going to be the solution to my back problems, which in, in many ways it was, it did help a great deal. But what's, what I, I what I found out really quickly was that the, the greater benefits of that desk were cognitive, um, and 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 you know my focus, my concentration, my energy, all these things just started shooting through the roof as a result of not sitting all day, as a result of standing. So, I guess that's that's all by way of saying that 
you know, this was, you know, not long before we started this business and, and that experience that, that was to me, that was one of the catalyzing moments, that energy and that newfound focus and concentration that I had as a result of using that standing desk, frankly, was a keystone moment in my life that led me to where I am now. So it was kind of fitting that, that in this stage where we're trying to think, okay, we've got a few different business ideas, but what are the, you know, how do we really want to bring value to the world? Top of mind for me was, I want more people to have standing desks. I want more people to feel what I feel right now. And so, you know, essentially that led us to, to start standing desk nation. I was not focused specifically on drop shipping. Um, in reality, I, you know, I just looked at it as I wanted to sell desks. Drop shipping to me is not a business model. It's just a distribution model. So I never fully embraced the idea of being a drop ship business. And in fact, from, from the very beginning, uh, one of our, one of our key manufacturers, one of our key vendors that we worked with, I found because I had been reaching out to some factories overseas about possibly private labeling, uh, some of the, the desks that they were manufacturing. And I found out that some of them were already selling here in the United States. You've always disliked that word. Ever since I've known you, you've kind of battled that word. Why is that the drop ship? I don't battle it. I, 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 to me, I'm the opposite, right? I just think people misunderstand it. It it drives me crazy that there are so many people out there that that you know, in many cases, maybe consider themselves gurus or or experts, and they they treat drop shipping as if it's a business model, and it's not, right? What we're doing is we're we're selling physical products, right? It's 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 e-commerce. It's it's um, you know, it's it's traditional traditional sales. Drop shipping is just a means of getting the product from a warehouse to a customer, right? It's it, frankly, there's nothing that says a drop shipping store can't also stock product, right? So it just, it always, it always bothered me that, that I think it was, I guess, I don't know, misrepresented as, as a business model. And I think, I, frankly, I think it limits a lot of people's thinking that it's got a getting stigma into to it too, right? Like, when typically when dropshipping is brought up, people are thinking of, you know, really crappy products they found on Alibaba that they're sending via e-packet. It'll show up at your house in three weeks in a heavily, heavily taped box. I'm not sure why they tape them so much. Um, and you know, there's no, there's no connection there, right? There's no, there's no real business there if I'm honest with you. Uh, so it does have a stigma. I mean, did that play a role into it as far as like when you see it, you know, being taught out there, I know that's something you, you bring up a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there trying to teach a certain model uh, of drop shipping, right? And uh, they're not all authentic about it, I guess. I think, I mean, if, if, I'm, if, if I'm talking specifically about when I started Standing Disney Nation, I just liked the fact that it, 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 was, it was great that I could sell standing desks without having to invest in hundreds of thousands of dollars in inventory. Um, I mean, the fact is specifically if we're talking about high ticket, you know, expensive, big items, there isn't a lot of economic value to shipping them twice and warehousing them twice, right? The, the, the end loser in that, if, if I take a, you know, a, a, let's just say a $500 standing desk and I ship it from the manufacturer's warehouse to my warehouse, I store it. And then I ship it again from my warehouse to the customer. The end, end, end loser there is the person who's using it in the end, right? All we're doing is adding expense. All we're doing is piling on cost 
into the supply chain and it doesn't really serve anybody. So I, I just think that there are some industries and some products that inherently, um, you know, are well served by having the product shipped directly from the manufacturer to the, to the end user customer, as long as that manufacturer can afford to do that, right? As long as they, they can afford to hold that much inventory and, and warehouse all those products. And, and frankly, now as a manufacturer, you know, myself, you know, in, in, in movement, you're, you're, you're in my business. I take value in having dealers that we drop ship for, right? The idea is to me, what mattered in that whole process was the fact that I was creating value, right? I knew that I was working with suppliers that didn't necessarily have the skills or the means to reach customers that I could, right? And I knew that there were customers who needed these products who weren't sufficiently either being, either they weren't sufficiently aware of those products, in our case, standing desks, or weren't sufficiently able to make buying decisions about those products. And so that's where I thought we came into play, right? We were sort of the perfect uh, middleman in between, but there's no point in adding an extra touch point and adding extra costs to the supply chain. Well, I, and I think yeah, I, you bring a lot more value than that too, right? Like most of the manufacturers I've ever dealt with, and I've been in a lot of different industries, right? Like my very first store was 3D printers. The the people who are designing and manufacturing 3D printers or standing desks, they're not good marketers. Uh, and it's our job as marketers, again, to serve that customer. Like it, it's, you know, Brian took this upon himself. It's his duty to get more people standing at their desk, right? And so uh, likely someone else is going to be better at that than the person who's actually manufacturing the desk in the first place. True. Although one thing you can't argue with is that it's it's easier than ever to sell direct. There are, because for the same reasons we described earlier, wherein it's easy to create value online and in the gig economy to, to make a living, it's very easy to reach end user customers and it's very easy to find people that can help you sell and market without having to, to use a dealer and give up large portions of your margin to do so. So it's certainly, it's gotten easier for manufacturers to sell direct to consumers, but ultimately you're right. I mean, most of them, they're good at manufacturing and, and, and frankly, you know, with Standing Disc Nation, we work with more than 20 different, uh, 20 different vendors and none of them are as good at selling to or servicing customers as we are. I mean, without, without any question. So look, uh, one of my favorite parts of standing destination, uh, aside from the, the drop shipping, like was just when I met you, right? Like you were super into this, you were super authentic about it. Um, and you were really like deep diving into some of, of the brands as far as like why you like some and why you didn't and, like immediately shine to me, like how much, how authentic you were about this, like how much you actually cared. And I think that's what drew me to you in the first place. Um, and you really, you really cared about a, a couple of brands that ended up, you know, one of them ended up becoming your brand, right? Like our brand that, that at this point I was a partner with you. Uh, and I'd love to deep dive into that story. Cause that story is crazy to me how that all came about. And I'm really not sure how much we can or can't say. Um, but the fact that you went from, you know, becoming this big retailer of standing desk and turning this into a, a you know, a decent store, right. That was taking care of you and your family. Uh, you brought me in on as a partner to help try to grow this thing. Uh, and then this whole brand thing happened. I'd love to like tell that story. Cause it's interesting how number one, how we acquired that brand. Uh, and then number two, how you just recently uh, acquired another brand. Yeah. So, okay. So, so just to set the time frame, it, you know, it's now, uh, you know, early mid 2020, uh, we, 
we acquired in movements, which is now our own brand of standing desks and treadmill desks and, and, uh, you know, general office fit fitness products at the moment. Yeah. How can, and, how far can we deep dive into that? I'm not sure exactly what the, uh, the lawyers say we can or can't say, cause that story is very interesting to me. Yeah, Most of it's okay. I, I think technically I probably shouldn't say the name, but, um, I, I think we're, we're okay. So, um, so we, we basically, we finalized that transaction in March of 2019. So we're just now over a year in. On the coldest fucking day on the planet. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I, literally, we were in Chicago during the polar vortex of 2019 when it was minus 50 something outside in Chicago. We we got stuck. I, you know, planes weren't taking off. I was stuck for an extra day in an airport and I, I or, or, sorry, in a hotel. And I had, I had flown there from Colorado to meet with all these people and to sign the actual contract while we were there in January. And it was so cold that the city shut down and they couldn't even get to the office. And we were, we were literally staying in a hotel that was like a hundred feet away from their, their offices. It was just bizarre. And I drove down but, in this, I drove six hours down there and like, you know, yeah. the whole time my, my truck is saying negative 45, negative 46. I'm like, should I be, should I be driving <laughs> six hours right now? What could go wrong? Yeah. It's that early twenties mindset of yours. Um, so okay, so so yeah, we started Sanders Nation in 2016. Uh, we I started selling in movement products in uh, let's see 20, 20, early 2017. Maybe it was 2016. I'm not even sure. Uh, very early on when when they were just getting started as a brand. What I would say is in movement was initially founded by literally the largest fitness equipment company in the world. Um, and at that time they were getting into the space. Veradesk was the only other real key player. There weren't a lot of other manufacturers yet. And they started building a brand, uh, early on, but you know, the, the fitness side of the company was a billion dollar company and it was part of a multi-billion dollar conglomerate. It was just one, one aspect of it. And while in movement, I mean, they made beautiful products. They, they, they uh, I am, I'm, I'm not being partial here. They made my favorite products and I think always thought they made the best looking products. I, I was a huge fan of their brand from day one, but they, they were definitely a lot of money into the brand too, right? Tons to of try money. to get this off the ground. And if I'm wrong and, and if, if I'm saying something, I shouldn't just tell me, I'll cut it out after the show. But like, this was a former CEO too, right? This was somebody else's brainchild. Um, and then a new one came in and was like, why are we doing this? Sort of. Yeah. I, I think what happened is they went into this thinking it was going to be a nine figure business right off the bat. And there's nothing that says it couldn't have been right. I mean, they, they, they were there in the right moment, but I think what they didn't understand is that this is a heavily direct to consumer oriented business where as a fitness company, their entire model across all of their businesses is selling to and shipping to distributors and dealers and then let them sell onto the end user. So they only, they, they, all they've ever done is ship in, in bulk quantities. All they've ever done is sell in bulk quantities and, and rely on these longstanding relationships with these fitness dealers. And it turned out that they just didn't have any ammunition to sell these standing desks. And the only way to go was direct to consumer. And so that's where things failed. And, and they spent, I don't know exactly what they spent, but I know they spent many millions of dollars in advertising costs. They had, a, had a, an upscale, um, high-end loft 
office in downtown Chicago. They invested in a showroom at Neocon, a permanent showroom year round um, in, in, in downtown Chicago. I mean, they put money into this and you know, this, this major fitness company allocated huge portions of its overhead to in movement, right? So they thought it was going to be a big portion of their revenue and they built it up to a, a you know, a, a, a you know, a, a several million dollar company, but it just wasn't what I think they were hoping for in a short period of time. And like you said, they had some new leadership come in and just decide, look, this isn't core to our business. Let's just focus on the things that got us here and move on from this standing desk business. And so I got wind of this and just started sniffing around. And, and one of the things I would say, you know, going back to, to what you're talking about earlier, you know, I, I didn't just embrace getting to know all my brands and all my products really well, really well. I really embraced creating and building relationships with our suppliers. And I think that's been a big part of what's served me to this point. It's probably been my, you know, to pat myself on the back a little bit, even though that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to just make a point that the number one thing that I can look back on and really feel strong about is that I leaned into all of my supplier relationships with Standing Disc Nation. And I wouldn't have been able to even get to the point of negotiating a deal within movement had I not had those. So I got wind that in movement was basically being wound down and, and might go away. And I started sniffing around and basically said, look, would you guys consider selling? And in fact, before that even happened, we snatched up, we, we bought um, several hundred of their um, last remaining desks in inventory. And so for, for a while, we were selling them through Standing Disc Nation as the only real dealer. And, and things were just great, right? I mean, we just, just we're really happy with it. So we knew that if we bought the brand, we, we felt like we were going to be in a, in a good place. So they made incredible products too. And it started to step on you here, but like you mentioned it, their products are incredible. Like they were very well thought out. They're very well put together. Um, the colors, the, the movement, everything was just top notch, right? Like they were definitely the high end of the market. Uh, it both on the products that we didn't acquire and the ones that we did, like they were incredible products. Yeah. And maybe to a detriment, right? I mean, maybe part of the problem is that, is that like their treadmill desks that they sold, I think most would say was over-engineered just because even though it was a really nice, a really nice treadmill desk, it just priced itself so far out of the market. And, and I say that as somebody who is currently selling the most expensive treadmill desk in the market, but the, <laughs> the in-movement desk that, that they were selling was literally twice the price of the one we have now, which is still the most expensive. So that's how far out of the market that they were. Their old treadmill was like four grand. It was 4,600 bucks. Yikes. It was yeah. cool though. I mean, it looked really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it had a lot of value to it. Um, it, especially the way that the desk was built in with the treadmill, um, which has advantages and disadvantages, but, um, even, even the team, like I, I remember speaking with, um, one of the people who's kind of responsible for all of their manufacturing and, and sourcing overseas. And he basically said, it was just, it was this crazy committee where everybody just kept piling in more and more features and there was nobody in there really curating it saying, look, is this really essential? Is this going to create the value? You know, are, I, I guess in any new feature, any new design that you're going to add to a product, you always have to ask yourself, okay, this does make it better, but is the value to the customer, is that in proportion to the cost that they would then have to pay? You know, and mm. so I think they lost sight of that whole, that whole equation. Look, I think what's crazy about this deal, and I'm sorry to jump to the end of it, but I think what's crazy about this deal is like, 
you acquired this for nothing, like virtually nothing. Um, and so like we were just, we were talking earlier of how, you know, some people don't want to start cause they're worried about failing. And if you look at this multi-billion dollar company, they essentially just cast into this to the wayside. They threw a ton of money at it, a, a ton of, there's a ton of like, uh, videos and content and infographics and blog posts and, uh, commercials and they, and all the other stuff you mentioned, right? Like the neocon stuff, they, they invested all of that. And then they're just like, yeah, uh, this isn't working out. Which is just bananas to me, right? Like, again, I don't, I don't know how deep we want to get into it, but we acquired it for virtually nothing, uh, at least by my standards. Um, yeah. And it, the, that whole thing to me is just crazy. Looking back at, at the whole cycle of events, there. Uh, I agree. So, so I'll, I'll add what I can. Um, so, so mostly that the the deal that we agreed to was royalty based. Um, we started negotiating in June of 2018. We didn't close until March of 2019. That's how long this, this took largely because they were such a big company. I mean, this is a billion dollar company that we're talking about here. And so we had this weird battle. Um, of, I shouldn't say weird battle. We, we just sort of had this strange dichotomy wherein sometimes I had to sort of, I had to try to find a way to make sure the deal was big enough so as not to lose their attention. Right. But on the other hand, they were so big, it was like they just didn't give a rip. It, it, I mean, there was there was to some degree, it was almost like there's a, it was like a here, just take this. Let's just let's just not let it go to waste, right? I hate to see it just disappear into the ether. You might as well have it. And so it was a strange dichotomy between between those two things. And ultimately, what you know, what got us to the finish line was saying, look, um, why don't you guys participate a little bit in the upside in the upside of these products that you guys have developed? Mm. Um, it, it turns out that it, it was much, much messier than we, we thought it was going to be. Um, we, we, you know, we now know that there were some, some IP and licensing issues that were, that were, we weren't aware of at the time. And, um, company was in the process of, of being sold, uh, sold off and, and transferred to, to new leadership once again. So it, it, it's, it's been kind of messy and, and, um, imperfect, but I guess that's probably how, how, most transactions are at least to some degree. Yeah. But big companies are weird. Like you mentioned the bureaucracy to give some context. We finally got on a call with them in the hotel, in your hotel room, uh, in Chicago. Cause nobody came to work on negative 50 degree day. Uh, what, how many people were on that call? Like nine? Yeah. I don't know. Just to like answer a few quick questions. We had nine people on the phone call. Right. And then like you said, it took, uh, what eight, nine months to get this done, 10 months, um, that also, you know, diminished the brand, right? Like, um, nine months of just nothing happening out, uh, in the ecosystem didn't help the brand either. Right. So bureaucracy definitely slowed things down and, and caused some headaches along the way. And, uh, and no question. It was a reason why they had to sell this business. Cause it, I'm sure it was a big part of their, you know, it, it was a big barrier in them being successful from the, from the beginning. And and like you mentioned, again, I don't know how, how much we can go into it, but like immediately we got sued. Like immediately we got sued uh, as soon as we took over the brand by, you know, the Goliath in the industry. Yeah. Well, I, we, we were threatened suit. We didn't actually get sued, thankfully. Right. I'm going to be gonna fair. knock on wood quietly. <laughs> um, to be fair, we, yeah, we were trying to get, uh, you know, they were trying to strong arm us. Yeah, no question. And, 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 um, you know, hopefully, ho- hopefully that's not going to be an issue. We, we basically, um, we basically acquiesced and said, look, we didn't realize we were, we were doing the things that you're alleging. Um, looks like, you know, the company was a little, 
maybe not totally forthcoming or it was just a misunderstanding. Fr- frankly, in, in hindsight, I don't think that anybody was trying to pull the wool over their, over our eyes. I think, again, it was a bureaucratic issue. I think that the people that probably knew that this, that there was an issue, that there was a potential infringement and license issue, I think they were gone. I don't even think they were around. I don't think the right people were talking to the right people. Um, I think everyone had the best of intentions all along the way. Um, but unfortunately, uh, it, it led to a little bit of trouble. But but ultimately, you know, we thankfully we were small enough to quickly pivot and find a way to to you know make sure that we weren't we weren't uh, infringing on anybody's IP or, or creating any trouble. Well, and we've definitely we've definitely been selling some desks right since we took it over, uh, and that's great. I would I would love it if everybody listening went to inmovement.com and and got a desk for themselves. Uh, but like moving, I want I want to keep talking about some of this deal stuff, right? Like so that deal to me was incredible, just the way it went down, you know, with the 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 optics around it as well. Like me driving from nearly Minneapolis right down to Chicago in negative fifty, and then driving home the next day when it was you know a balmy negative forty. Uh, it, that the, the optics around it, the fact that we were on a call with nine people and nobody showed up and we immediately got sued and we, we, we got it for no money. Like that whole deal was just strange to me. Um, and how it led us into having this brand of really high end standing desks. Uh, and then your vision was like, we need to keep going. Right. So uh, I'm going to fast forward a bit, uh, to December of last year. I'm, I'm burnt. I am just completely burnt out. Uh, I go to a mastermind where I get shredded, uh, and they're, they're kind of telling me, Hey, you need to start the podcast you're currently listening to. Um, and I, I go from there to Thailand and I, I tell Brian, I tell my other partners, don't talk to me. I just need two weeks. And I went by myself. I need two weeks completely by myself. Uh, and I really didn't know what was happening while I was gone, but Brian, please take it away. What did you do while I was completely gone? Um, that I'm applauding for, I'm, I'm applauding you for now. Yeah, we essentially, we, we did it again. I mean, we, we acquired another company, although this time on the opposite end of the spectrum, this is a very small company. We acquired another company that was manufacturing just an amazing treadmill and treadmill desk. And, and I think they, they sort of realized they were at the limits of their, um, their ability and, and they, had, they knew they had a great product, but they weren't the right ones to sell it. And so, you know, we had come in contact with them in, I want to say August or so of last year. And, and I initially reached out to them about some sort of license or, or partnership agreement um, because I had been trying to find a way to make a new treadmill to replace that, that overbuilt one that InMovement had from years before uh, because people were still coming to us and saying, hey, I want to buy a treadmill desk. When, you know, when are you going to have a new one or when, when are you going to have those back in stock? So in my quest, I came across this company, Unsit, and built a relationship with Rob, who is one of the owners and just a really, just an amazing guy. And, and basically over the course of time, the, the conversation shifted from, Hey, let's potentially, you know, partner or, or, or private label some of these for in movement to, Hey, maybe we should be working together to, Hey, maybe you guys, you know, should acquire us. And so, you know, basically in December, uh, I think it was the Friday before Christmas of 2019, uh, Rob and I agreed to a deal, and again, it was a it was an entirely deferred deal ba- based on on you know long term um, you know, a, a long term licensing agreement and royalties. 
<laughs> so again, I'm I'm in Thailand by myself. I remember getting your message of like, "Hey, I think I'm just going to acquire this business." Um, and, and you had mentioned it a few times, but I had no idea you were there. And so, kudos to you for like just making this happen. Uh, you know, if, I, I'm a big fan of partnerships, especially when they're as good as ours has been, and and one other one specifically that I was in. Uh, but you got to trust people, and and I'm super glad that I have 100% trust in you. That I'm sitting, you know, 12 hours, 13 hours off of you in a coffee shop in Thailand. Uh, and get this message. And I just, I just smiled, right? I sent you back a message and was like, yeah, it sounds amazing. I, I actually, now that you say that, I totally forgot about the, the videos you were sending back and forth. Cause we, we both had too much to say and we, and we just didn't feel like typing it. I remember you, you sent me a, I think you sent me a messenger video and then I responded with like four of them <laughs> each, each a couple of minutes long, trying to tell you what was going on and, and, and keep you updated. But, um, but yeah, it, it was really exciting. And it, it just like, I, I can't, I can't speak enough to the importance of, of, you know, finding, building and deepening relationships and how that can lead to these kinds of things. I just, I don't think people realize how many opportunities there are like this out there. You just never know what, what position the other person's going to be in. You know, in the case with, with, with Unsit and with Rob, um, I mean, somebody, I, I don't want this to be, I don't want anybody to take this as we're like fleecing this other company, right? That's not the case at all. It was just that they were a small company. They couldn't get over this hump. They didn't know what their next step was to really grow the business. And they recognized in us that there was an opportunity to do so. And so they just, you know, we, we, you know, through, through negotiation and conversation, we realized that yes, it's by, by paying them, and, and, and essentially acquiring the business through royalties, certainly we're deferring that, but they're still gaining. And, 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 and we have some minimum thresholds we have to meet, but ultimately they're still getting paid just as if they were running the business. And now they have a lot more upside because we have you know, more marketing experience. We have other products that we can pair it with. So it really, even though it sounds like just an amazing deal for us, I feel strongly that it was a win-win for both. And it's just a matter of, you know, finding the, the, the right person at the right time. And, and thankfully we've been able to do that, that twice. And, and who knows, there might be more out there. Look, mergers and acquisitions is a wonderful path to grow for any business, right? And so you, you nailed it, right? This is a wonderful deal for us. A wonderful deal. No money down. We acquired a business, but it's also a wonderful deal for them too. They were ready to move on. They're going to get paid. Uh, it, it functions more like an earnout for them, but there's a million ways to make a deal happen, right? And you inspired me. Um, I came home, I ended up exiting my biggest company I'm part of, which put me in a wonderful cash position. And I immediately reached out to uh, a competitor of a brand, a uh, pet supplement brand that I have. And I, I just cold reached out and was like, hey, I'm wondering if you're interested in uh, exiting your brand. And, and that's all it took was one one email that led to a phone call that we sat on Zoom for like an hour and got to know each other. We had a great conversation. Turns out she was like totally ready to move on. Uh, and so uh, while the deal didn't work out there, that's all it took was an email and a conversation and building this relationship. And uh, you never really know where someone's at. And there's many different ways that you can bolt on a business that helps your you know, your your home business grow. And so I'm, I'm clapping over here behind the microphone. Like, the fact that you found this and then moved on it as quickly as you did. And like you said, sending two minute uh, Facebook messenger videos over and over and over again. Uh, that's all it took, right? Like, I don't know. Kudos to you, man, for making this happen. And, and uh, you know, 
picking up a brand that's amazing, right? Like head over to inmovement.com and look at this treadmill. It's, it's twice as wide and half as long. Uh, it's, it's an amazing product and it's an expensive product, which is what the, the brand we're trying to build. Yeah, I have, I have no problems having the most expensive product on the market if I'm providing the most value on the market. And I feel really strongly about that. And, and frankly, that's why this, this sort of fit for us. I think you, for you and me, our vision together for in movement is very much what it was for the original manufacturer, which is, I think we, we want to be the premium product. And I, and that doesn't just mean premium price. It means it has to truly, it, there has to be tangible premium value above others in the market. We don't want to, we don't want to get in the race to zero. The market for standing desks in the last four years, since even since I've started has very much changed. Um, a lot of buying has shifted onto Amazon where there are, you can buy, you know, desk converters for, you know, just over a hundred bucks. You can buy full desks for three, 300 to 400 bucks, but there's a reason why they're priced that way, right? You're going to, you're going to pay for that when you have to replace it with a second one in a short, short amount of time or when it breaks. So, um, I feel really strongly about having the best product on the market. Anybody I work with, I, I, I almost demand it. Right. And I want to have the same thing. Uh, 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 for instance, you're talking through a microphone that I ship to your house because I want to have the best product on this podcast. I want to like, that's all you get is the voice here. Right. And so I'm, I feel very strongly about that in, in our businesses and every business I work with as well, that product's the only thing that matters, right? You have to have the best product. That has to be the beginning point. You have to have the best solution on the market. And, and I think we do, honestly. Yeah. It's the most sustainable way you can go about it. If, if, if you're selling and your, your largest value proposition is based on price, Granted, you can you can grab a lot of sales in a short period of time, but it's not sustainable over the long term. Well, I want to tie back to what we're doing. So I said way, way back, this podcast is long and I love it, uh, that working from home with your kids is like... Uh, it's been a challenge, but we've been able to like function that into ads. So first off, shout out to Taylor Holiday and your admission.co. What he's doing over there is amazing. Uh, we joined that. Uh, been playing a lot of poker with Taylor lately as well. Uh, but uh, you joined that specifically. You got in there and deep dove into some ads. So every, I'm going to give all kudos to you. I'd love to link to these somewhere in the show notes. But you've created some really funny ads with your children and how interacting with them at home during this whole you know quarantine has has been interesting. You want to talk about some of the ads that you're doing? And uh, honestly, I'd love to link to them too because they're pretty funny. Yeah. So okay. So uh, the background for this is uh, the the. Our, our continuing conversation between Ben and I, and, and Ben and I talk on a regular basis. Um, I mean, we, we really work together closely in terms of marketing and movement in general. And, and we constantly lament the fact that our biggest fault, our biggest um, failure is that we both suck at creative, right? It's just, we just don't have a natural uh, ability for affinity towards um, creative. And, uh, I was on a, on a zoom call though. So, so I recently, like you said, Ben and I recently joined admission and we were on a zoom call a week and a half ago or so. And it was all about, um, it was all about creative and, and they actually used in movement.com as an example to, you know, sort of, sort of break down the site, break down some of our ads and say what we're doing, right. What we're doing wrong, what we, what we could do better, what we could change. And it just sort of inspired me to think a little bit differently about this. And if there was an if there was ever a moment in time, and you know, right now it's it's early April, we're all stuck in our house, um, everybody's working from home. If there was ever a moment in time to say, screw the you know the the creative budget, forget making it pretty and perfect and polished. Let's just create things that 
feel real in the moment, now is the time. And so I just was inspired by, by that call and by, you know, by Taylor and, and by um, Adrienne and a few other people on the call to just start shooting stuff around the house. So, you know, we shot, we shot a video. I, I got the kids involved. Um, Allie was holding an iPhone. We didn't even have a, have like a DSLR camera or anything like that. We, we set up a desk right next to our, one of our, our rooms downstairs and started shooting all these scenes of the boys coming in and disrupting me, right? Like, you know, asking me for, for snacks and to watch a show and to play Legos and all these things. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how, how much you want me to go into the, the actual ads themselves, but I think that the greater point was um, never have I felt like it's easier and more acceptable to create just these low quality, really authentic ads that people can relate with and, and, and connect to. And so since that time, I think I've created what, like four or five different um, videos that hopefully we can use for these things. Look, I think that's the best part. This is why I preach to people, do what you love, be, be the center uh, be like in the brand, right? So you you live and breathe this movement stuff. Honestly, like this is you and your family, like you working at home right now and your kids bothering you. That's you. Uh, and this is why I love teaching people who do that because you're able to sit at home with an iPhone and record real moments, like live in the zeitgeist, right? Things that are going on. I'm trying to find an ad right now. I'm scrolling through here uh, where you referenced, uh, you know, TPS reports, right? Your son's standing there holding a coffee cup and said, I'm going to need those TPS. Like that's right. just, yeah, just, Honestly, ads aren't that hard, right? And so I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, back you up and say we both suck at creative. I don't think that's true. You just have to like practice to get better at it, right? And so you saw some tangible examples of how you could just be yourself uh, and spread this word, and then it sparked the creativity in you, right? And um, I think anybody can get this done, but it, it's definitely easier um, when it's something you love. Honestly, I, you know, if you were at home again. I, my my go-to example is always underwater basket weaving, right? But like, would you feel comfortable in your sink weaving the basket? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. There's a million products you could sell that you didn't, you don't believe in, right? And so you believing in this and something that you would preach, whether you had a company like this or not, it has to make this way easier. Yeah, no question. If anything, I just have to slow myself down every once in a while. You know, I have to remind myself that, that, there's a process to this and that, and that not everybody's near the bottom of the funnel. You know, I, I have to remind myself, you know, meet people at the top. Yeah. I mean the hook, the hook story offer thing is what I've been studying a lot. Like, you know, Russell Brunson's new book, traffic secrets talks a lot about it. Uh, it's the hook, right? It's the top of the funnel. It's like getting people even interested to know that there's a, a treadmill desk out there or a standing desk out there. And, and then, you know, being relatable, uh, your video, and I'm going to try to find a way to link to this in the show notes, the video of your two kids bothering you, uh, and, and, you know, Bucky saying, I got to use the toilet and they, you, you kind of flash away and then you hear the toilet go off and he needs your help. Uh, that hit home for me, right? Uh, that happens, uh, once in a while around here. And so, uh, I think that's all it is, right? It's just being relatable and, and getting, getting people to at least watch and, and hear the story, uh, so that you can provide even more value before you make an offer. Yeah. And I, I think the, the, the other important aspect, specifically, if you're talking about, you know, top of funnel prospecting, if you're doing, if you're going to use it on Facebook or something like that, and this is something that I know Taylor has hammered home is what are you going to do to stop the person from scrolling first? That's to me, that's almost the hardest part. And so, so how, if somebody's, you know, thumbing through on their phone at, at a million miles an hour, how do you get them to stop? And, and uh, I, I have a sense that in the moment it's those, those more, you know, those more relatable things. Obviously there's gotta be movement. There's gotta be you know something there to quickly capture their attention. But 
I almost feel like if there was ever time where, where somebody's going to skip over a well-produced video, now is it, right? They mm. want to see something more, more personal. Well, the hook can be anything too, right? Go back to Russell Brunson, one of his old books. I don't remember which one it was, Dot Com Secrets or uh, one of those. Um, His hook, it doesn't necessarily have to be a hook that's like something catchy or something that you write. He was standing in front of a pile of burning books. And like, if that doesn't catch your eye, I don't know what would, right? Like a video of somebody standing around a fire, like might get you to stop. That's not something you're normally going to see unless it's mid midsummer in your Facebook feed, right? So the, anything you can do, like you said, to get them to stop and then you can actually give them a story, right? Tell them a story to provide more value about the product. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say I'm still learning how to do this. I, I, I'm, I'm not great at it. If, if, if I was face to face with somebody and I had to tell a story about my products, I would probably, probably do it very easily, but forcing me to do it in ad format or, you know, forcing me to do it in a, in a short form video or in the form of a, of a, of a graphic or an image, for some reason, that is always a challenge for me. And, and, and maybe it's because I'm comfortable with just, you know, regular authentic one-on-one conversation. And there's something, there's something a little bit more final about having one piece of communication that's supposed to deliver this message to, you know, hundreds or thousands of people that maybe it's just a mental roadblock for me. But I know that's one thing that I really struggle with, even though I know it's in me for some reason, I just, I struggle in that format to, to communicate as well as I do one-to-one. Well, I'm certainly not an expert, right? Like I, I cut my teeth on Google. I think I'm really, really good over there, but that's usually bottom of the funnel. You can run some YouTube ads that are top, but, uh, what you're doing is a is a whole new world to me as well, especially with this brand. But I, I'm, I'm applauding you. I hope I can link to some of these because some of the stuff you're creating is uh, is pretty cool. So, uh, you know, wrapping this all up, where where is the future hole? Where where are you going with these businesses, and uh, how can anybody reach out to you if they want to talk to you, Brian? Well, I think you know, in in, in movement is very much the future. Not that standing destination is is going to go away, but um, you know, as a you know, as, as a personal goal, I think in movement more is more directly what I want to, to put my passion and my time into. Uh, I think there's just something different about selling your own products. And at this point, you know, we, we've, we've sort of had to redesign and recreate some things. And, and so in movement is very much being molded into the, the company that we want it to be and not just the company that we bought or inherited. Um, so I'll be spending a lot of time on that. I'm still ex- excited to keep growing standing destination. And, and frankly, I think the, the overarching vision in all of this is I don't think people understand how much your sedentary behavior, how much sitting really affects us. I don't think people understand mentally and physically just how harmful all of that sitting around is for us. And, and for, for those of you that are, that are athletes or, or CrossFitters and you're, and you're putting your work in for, you know, 60 minutes every day. Sorry, man. I mean, the, the, the rest of the day you're still sitting and it's not enough to, to counteract it. Right. I mean, we're talking metabolic issues. We're talking, uh, we're talking, uh, physiological issues with, with tissues and, and back pain and things like that. We're talking about cognitive issues. Um, we're talking about hormone balance issues. I mean, there are just so many mal effects. And, and so I really just want to get people moving. And so I, I think you and I see in movement, moving on from just being a standing desk and treadmill desk company that, that ultimately our, our mission and our vision is to, is to get people moving in general across the entirety of their day and the entirety of their life. 
So it, anyways, if, if anybody wants to find me, I mean, the easiest place is, is either Brian at inmovement.com or Brian, B-R-I-A-N at standingdesignation.com. Um, we always give good deals to friends and family. And so if, if, if any of you out there um, you know, need help with that, just don't know where to start, you feel like it's too expensive, it's too hard to install, whatever it is that's stopping you, because I find that everybody knows or everybody says, oh man, I really need one of those. But for some reason, so few people still are, are, you know, jumping over that hurdle to do it. I, I want to be the person and have the companies that help break down that barrier. So Brian might not tell you, but he wants to help people in other ways too. So if you're, you know, you're coming from that high ticket dropshipping world and you're looking for someone, uh, you know, to coach you along, I bet if you reached out to Brian, he might be able to work out a deal with you too. Cause I know he loves to help people. You're, you're one of the most authentic, genuine, uh, people I know, Brian, you're one of my best friends. So I appreciate you being on the show, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. Boy, it was great hearing Brian Angel's entire story. Uh, I'd love to highlight the fact that he is truly one of the nicest people I've ever met. He is a great family man, a great business owner, a great father, and someone who inspires me every single day to be a better human being. So thanks so much, Brian, for being on the show. If you want to check out what we're doing, look at the brand we acquired, look at the treadmill company we acquired, head over to inmovement.com. And Brian said, if you want to reach out to him, brian at inmovement.com. Again, I appreciate you listening to the show. If you have a second, please leave a review. Otherwise, we'll see you back here for Episode 3 next Wednesday.